0: Welcome to the Altmetric podcast. What role does social media play in health support and nursing education? In this special episode, Mike Taylor talks to Kate Davies, who is a qualified children's nurse and senior lecturer in non-medical prescribing, about how social media can bridge a gap for patients and its role in nursing and nurse education. I'm Kate. I am a qualified children's nurse. I qualified years ago, about 30 years ago, and I've done various amounts of children's nursing. Uh, The the last 20 odd years, I specialised in endocrinology, which is the study of children's hormones. And in the last five years, I moved into nurse education. So I'm now a senior lecturer, which makes me sound incredibly posh, but it's not really. Senior lecturer in uh, non-medical prescribing, which is teaching everyone apart from doctors how to uh, prescribe drugs. And when I actually introduce myself to people, I'd say that I teach people how to prescribe drugs. (laughs) They're like, oh, but it's not like that. So, um, so this is nurses and physiotherapists and podiatrists and pharmacists, you name it. And I lead the paediatric module, so I teach the children's nurses and the children's pharmacists and children's podiatrists, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But um, I still have an OR in paediatric endocrinology, so I'm an honorary research fellow at Arts and the London and Queen Mary Westfield University of London, and they always like pick on my nursery brains to help them out with nursery stuff every now and again and leading to that I um, when I was still in my last clinical job which is at Great Ormond Street I was the nurse that was involved in the DSD service which stands for differences of sex development and that's children who are born with genitalia um, which might not be perceived as what you'd be thinking as normal so they're kind of atypical, and this is either due to something due to their chromosomes or the um, embryological development or something that's happened, or a hormonal thing. So from that, I joined the DSD families, which is their support group, and it's very much in its infancy. But last year, I kind of offered slash was asked to uh, commandeer their Twitter account, and I've only ever tweeted you know, retweeted pictures of, you know, what I had for dinner or something like that. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm not a Twitter file. And that's because I think w- with my own Twitter account, there's a picture of me and I have a persona on Twitter. But when I was managing, when I managed the DSD Families one, I'm invisible. I'm as the trustee. Mm. So when I started managing it, it um, had about six followers. And now we've got over 700 Wow, which is quite a wow factor, but we do have kind of rules of engagement as a charity in that we can't really engage with people who want to try and provoke us. So we try and remain apolitical. Although I did tweet something the other day, which was just a question mark, and I thought that was a bit scary saying that. Um, <laughs> but what I try and do is is tweet fairly regularly, like once maybe twice a week, although obviously COVID through a like Spanish that works and that is just tweeting readable research for patients or whoever yep. is following us and not not hugely scary clinical kind of this is what that kind of surgery does and you know these are the p-values sure. of whatever that is but it's like hey look at the kind of psychological effects that we can help you with and we've got a website as well and I'm often uh, tweeting resources from that as well just to put it out there that if they don't know that our website's there then here's here's an excerpt of it and here's the link to follow and I know a lot of our followers also kind of hide behind their handle because sure. it's, it's quite a difficult um, area of clinical need because it's not like I can hand put my hand up and say hello well, I've got asthma but it boils down to there's some kind of abnormality or anomaly with their genitalia so the people mm. that are tweeting with us and communicating with us can do it more freely because no one knows them and they're not shy to speak up which is a good thing but then you get do you do get people on the other side of the bandwagon who are very shouty and very uh, and very cross about things Yeah, it's, and, a, it's, um, a, it's
1: a hot subject at the moment isn't it
0: yeah and the dsd used to be called intersex yes um And it is labelled into the LGBTQI plus kind of umbrella, which we don't perceive us as that. But it brings in a lot of the people who are under that umbrella into the arguing onto the Twitter page. So when you're choosing
1: to promote or, or link certain pieces of research to your community... Do you have a sense of what they're interested in and what they engage with? I mean, you you mentioned that you deliberately choose to not um, highlight the the more technical documents, but you perceive that there's another area of research that they are interested in.
0: Yeah. I I, I mean, certainly when I was becoming more prolific in tweeting for this account was when I was attending um, medical and nursing conferences and I was attending some of the presentations that renowned speakers on this field were presenting on and what they have found from their patients and from their research was that patients wanted more kind of psychosocial care and psychosocial support rather than coming to see the doctor are you taking your tablets yeah tick box All right, come back in six months they want to speak to people who have got the same kind of condition. And to know that they're not alone and they want to have the psychology support and they want nursing support and and just tips on how to live with this. And it's quite difficult with children as well. You know, how, how do they deal with this at school and that kind of thing? So from listening to what the medics and other nurses have spoken about at conferences, it's quite clear that what the community wants is more help and more support in dealing with their condition. So that's the kind of stuff that I think is appropriate to let them know about. So, for example, on our our website, we've got like a massive list of uh, resources, you know, how to speak to your child about this, how to speak to school, what does it mean to be a girl who's X, Y, that kind of thing. And the charity did a big report last year called Listen To Us, which was all about interviewing young people about what they wanted. So we've linked to that. And people retweet that quite a lot. Um, as in like you know if if someone's actually getting what a dsd is is incorrect then like we get tweeted into someone's rant about something so you look at dsd families and read their listen to us report and that's telling people you know this is where we are this is what we're at it's nothing to do with the big casta samania thing where you know whether she can run in athletics or not you know it's just being there to support people and to hold their hand and say, actually, we're here to listen and we're not here to preach or judge. Which sounds quite fluffy, but um, yeah, it's more supportive literature rather than saying, "Oh, yes, did you know that?" You know, there's I you don't know one in every five thousand children are born with this condition, kind of thing.
1: I know from conversations that you and I have had before that you feel that there is a particular need for for nursing. Research or nurse driven research, yeah. particularly when it comes to supporting patients and their carers and parents to develop strategies and to deal with their illnesses, uh, as well as to make sure that they understand the importance of treating themselves as well yeah. as maintaining a, a treatment regime.
0: Well, so, certainly, as in our role as a nurse, certainly when I was still clinical patients used to go in and see the consultant or the registrar and check medically that they're all right and that that consultation might take anything for like 10 minutes or 20 minutes whatever and then it would be like or go and chat to the nurse and then see what you know what else you need and then they could be with us for an hour because then they can open up to us and tell them what the real issues are the fact that you know yes they're being prescribed hydrocortisone but why do they have to have only four weeks prescribed at a time. Why can't they have three months at a time? They're taking five tablets of it a day and they only get given two boxes. You know, That's the issues that come to us. So then we find out exactly what the patients want. And so what I think is lacking is that we as nurses know what the patients want, but actually, especially under COVID at the moment, but physically don't have the time to get stuff out there. But, and this is what we have highlighted before, is that using social media, I think, would be a brilliant avenue because it's short, it's sweet, and majority of people don't need training on it anymore. It, it, it's something that needs to be explored, I think.
1: Mm. And I know that from when you and I were first talking about the role of social media and nursing, that there was still a very big question mark over whether it was appropriate to be doing this. And I know we're going back a number of years now.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah
1: but I'm sure that that will have changed over the course. And now yeah. you're involved in delivering education to nursing. Yeah. I expect that they're asking you how, how they would be using social media. Um,
0: well, would, I mean, maybe. yeah, certainly like, in the last few months, I mean, I've been off sick at home, but our university is closed to people coming on campus. So we've moved to online teaching at the moment, and we're certainly having to do that for next semester as well. So I actually don't have to physically go into work till January. But on the other hand, we've got to completely revolutionise how we, this is the buzzword, enhance the student experience. We can't just do a PowerPoint and put it up onto their, you know, online learning platform. We've got to move beyond that. And we can't just video us doing an, uh, an overview of it either. We've got to really start engaging. And that is going to be through stuff like blogs and podcasts and our own Twitter account and get students engaged because research has shown that if we start doing a lecture in front of a student within 10 minutes they're, they're switched off so we've got to deliver yeah. our our education to them now in kind of bite-sized chunks so they can get it and and we've got to do that through social media and online platforms which is really scary because <laughs> <laughs> i'm not an it whiz I'm not an old fogey by any way, nor means, but um, a lot of the Certainly not pre- <laughs> Thank you. A lot of the pre-registration students, so the students just coming out of school are way more capable about all this stuff than I am. My daughter is 11, and she was showing me how to do something on my phone the other day. I thought I, I, thought, I, thought I knew how this thing works.
1: When you're teaching prospective nurses, how much focus do you spend? on that engagement aspect, on how to engage with their future patients?
0: I, that's a really good question. Uh, my teaching has changed over the last few years because a few years ago I was teaching undergraduates and now I just teach postgraduates, although well, a few undergraduates. Um, certainly in the undergraduates, we had a whole module on communication. I mean, this was only five years ago, but that wasn't talking about anything online or social media that was actually face to face how we communicate with the patients and i always used to say sit down and have a cup of tea and they were like what well, i said no always offer someone a cup of tea and that breaks down that barrier but that's changed now the majority of my students now are qualified nurses or pharmacists or whatever and we are teaching them how to um, prescribe drugs but a lot of yeah. it is surrounding the patient consultation and how you approach that patient And the kind of questions that you need to ask that patient when you're speaking with them. And actually, we do have, I do have someone who comes in to teach from KCLs, from King's, who purely talks about um, patient adherence and compliance to medication. So he's not a medical doctor. And and that is one of the most well-received sessions that actually this isn't something that they've really thought of before because... You know, adherence, compliance, concordance, there's different ways for it. You've got to get on board with the patient straight away before they leave that consulting room. Otherwise, A, they won't listen to you, and B, they won't take the drug.
1: Yeah, and I bet nowadays those patients are coming to you armed with information.
0: Yes, yes, Dr. Google.
1: Whereabouts, whereabouts are they getting, getting that data from? Dr. Google. Dr. Google, yeah.
0: Yes, type in something and then... Boom, yeah, it goes crazy. So, so, for example, if you go onto Google and type in growth hormone, for example, and a lot of my old patients used to have to take growth hormone for various reasons, but if you type it into Google, then the wrong growth hormone comes up straight away. It's, it's the stuff that athletes want. And and here, buy a bottle of human growth hormone for $10. <laughs> no, that's, it's wrong information. So, yeah, Dr. Google is... <coughs> Yeah, But they do, they come in with reams of printed paper, and so I found this literature which says this. Which literature?
1: Yeah, one of the things that has emerged over the course of the last 10 years or so is that there's a correlation between how engaged, how educated a patient is about their condition, and, and more broadly, how willing they are to speak up and to, to ask questions and to engage with their healthcare providers. As someone who's has a responsibility to engage with patients. How do you go about raising that level of education and thereby improving the health outcomes?
0: I mean, when I was a clinical nurse, I worked with children. I'm a children's nurse by background, so I worked with children. So we had to depend on their parents to do the engaging, which wanting to know more about their condition, they, wanted, they tended to want to know everything yesterday because obviously they want to have the, the health of their child is their priority. So they're almost greedy for any information that we could give them from day one. And certainly, from what I can remember being in clinical practice, certainly within the last 10, 15 years, education sources and resources has boomed because of our abilities with technology and social media etc and and i'm a huge strong advocate for a nice app basically and i had a little look at um apps just before i came on to talk to you and there's so many out there to try and improve patient outcomes there's lots on health and looking at your heart rates and how much water you're drinking can you lose weight exercise looking at your menstrual cycle when you're ovulating um Italian migraines so looking at your fetal development when you're pregnant, how to stop smoking. There's loads and loads on health promotion. And it's only natural, I think, that there's the step that we as nurses can use this kind of um, format to try and educate our patients because so many patients have got smartphones or tablets or whatever. But um, it just comes down to the to the old-fashioned, you know, have we got time to make this? And, you know, I I've, I've been in a... In a team where we had an idea for an app, which eventually got developed, it was it's called MyCortisol, and it's how to educate people how to take an emergency injection of hydrocortisone if you've got adrenal insufficiency. It was pushing the idea from, from us as clinical nurses, and we were having to do that in our own time because we didn't have time within our work environment to do that and you know you do all this work in the weekends and in the evenings to to put this forward for your patients and it's absolutely exciting but you know no one pays you for that what recognition do you get and apart from the fact that you know six months later the patient might come to clinic and say yeah that was great thanks and and that's what it comes down to as a nurse that is what you want to know that it has made a difference because actually at the end of the day we don't want to be paid extra for the design or anything but it's getting that recognition from a patient or a patient's parent Let's say thank you that has made a difference and that's what we want to hear at the end of the day.
1: So how do you go about developing uh, a consensus view amongst practitioners about how you communicate appropriately with patients? I mean I I know that with, uh, with pharma and with medicine you have this whole structured approach with clinical guidelines and so forth but is there a similar approach with with nursing and patient support?
0: I mean, there is lots of patient support groups that we can tap into. It's very difficult because it depends where you are in the country, depends on what resources you got. You know, so for example, the the big leading NHS trusts in London are going to be more financially better resourced than a small district general hospital in the middle of the country. So it depends on what ability that particular nurse has got to be able to reach out to fellow nurses and find out what their usual resources are so yeah it depends on where you live in the country and and in that sense especially in somewhere like central london is you've got such a a, a high multinational kind of population there you've got to reform these resources in several different languages as well and that doesn't come cheap either so yeah, I mean, for you know, when I was working at Great Ormond Street, we were fortunate in that as much as our information leaflets were translated into several different languages, but you know, if you are working in the middle of the Welsh valleys or something, that's probably not going to be as easy for you. Although, if you are working there, then you do know the nurses working at those main centres, and they would obviously be able to share their resources. So, I think it depends on wh- where you work and and your ability to get in hot contact with the. Patient support groups. Whereas, you know, if you're on Twitter, you can find them pretty much easily enough because most of the patient support groups do have a social media presence now, as I know.
1: Yeah, I hadn't really thought about that, but of course, um, in this case, you're talking about practitioners who are using social yes. media to connect with other practitioners in yeah. order to to further that network of support. That's yeah. a really interesting way of uh, of thinking about it. That, that was a really interesting conversation. Um, thank, you so much for, thank you so much for that, Kate. I, I'm sure that thank we're going to get a lot of interest from our listeners. Um, and we'll make sure to tweet about it as well.
0: Ooh. Thanks for tuning in. You can find out more about Altmetric on our website, altmetric.com. Until next time.